No, after hearing Pastor Brad last Sunday, I thought, well, you know, there's no need for me to be coming to preach to you folks. You know, he did a great job, and I, you know, I even took some notes. I don't know if you folks uh, take notes when uh, the pastors preach or not, but I, uh, you know, he talked about how that, uh, what's, what now, or, you know, what next? And um, it's like, you know, December's over, where we go from here? You know, all of the, all of the uh, glory and the wonderful things of Christmas, you know, the lights and the music and the activities and the Christmas music and the movies. And, you know, I, I couldn't help but notice he left out the goodies. I don't know if you noticed that or not, but, I, you know, that's one of the big things for me. Marsha does a lot of baking, cooking, you know, at Christmas. I look forward to those cookies, those special things, those special treats, and then I look forward to trying to get it off, too. Well, here we are, 2014. When I was younger, I used to hear people say, time sure does fly. And now that I'm older... I definitely agree, time does fly. You know, a, a day goes by so quickly, a week goes by so quickly, a month, and then before we know it, a whole year has gone by. And you know, it just seems like, you know, we come to Christmas, which is, I think it's kind of appropriate, you know, that the year builds to Christmas. You know, we begin in January and build to December and the coming of birth of Christ and so on. I think that's, that's a, an appropriate way for a year to go. But then what happens after, after Christmas? I know there's a lot of people that, uh, that come in the New Year's, they think it's a good time to start a New Year's resolution. And I went on the internet and found a website, and found a number of different websites that talked about the 10 most um, Exercise or practice New Year's resolutions. And uh, one of those in uh, mnewsj.com says that here's the 10 top most commonly made New Year's resolutions. And according to this website, this is also the most, the, the ones that people make and break the same every year. You know, they start with number 10 on the list, and um, that would be to spend more time with the family. And then fall in love. And I suppose that must be for single. No, no, I really think that's for married people. Fall in love again. Fall in love with your mate again. Number eight, help others accomplish their dreams. Number seven, quit smoking. All right, I'm glad that Greg's on top of this for me. Number six, quit smoking. Number, number seven, quit smoking. Number six, learn something exciting. Number five, get fit and stay healthy. Number four, enjoy life more. Number three, spend less and save more. Number two, get organized. And then number one, of course, is, you guessed it, lose weight. That's right. You know, as I look at, looked at these resolutions, I, I just wondered, do you see anything missing? Do you see anything missing in these resolutions? You know, it was 
not just this website, but almost every website I went to, that I, I, I saw what was missing was the spiritual, spiritual side of our life, giving attention to really what I consider to be the most important part of our life. You know, what I consider resolutions, whether they're New Year's or otherwise, I want to know what Jesus would have to say about my resolutions. What would be his New Year's resolution for me? What would be his perspective about my life? What do I need to do to live today with an eternal perspective? And I really believe that is a Christian's greatest challenge, to live consistently with with an eternal perspective about life. I'd like to have you stand as we look at Matthew chapter 16 and verses 21 through 27. Standing out of reverence for the, for the word of God. That's, you know, this is the word of Jesus, the word of God himself to us. And I know it's up here. You used to be able to tell when people were opening their Bibles because I could hear the leaves. But, you know, that's up here on the, so that you get, we don't need our Bibles as much today. But it says there in Matthew 16, 21 through 27, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. And Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You're a stomach block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. And Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will find it. What good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world and yet forfeits his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in my Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what he's done. I tell you the truth, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And you may be seated. Jesus asked his disciples many questions. In fact, I, I see in, in the Gospels that there was one of, this was one of the means that Jesus used to teach his disciples to ask them questions, to get them thinking about their own life, get them thinking about what he asked them. Last time I spoke here, I I focused on one of those questions. I don't know if there's anybody here that could remember what that question was. Well, I I doubt if you can remember last uh, Brad's uh, message last week either. But you know and. In Matthew 16, just before this, in verse 13, Jesus asked the disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? And who do you say that I am? More importantly, who do you say I am? Who do you say that I am? This morning, I'd like to have you consider that question in, there in Matthew 20, verse, six, verse 26, chapter 16. For Jesus said, what good will it be for a man if he gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit his very soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? 
You know, when Jesus asked his disciples this question, in the context, it seems to me that this was a question that Jesus faced himself a number of times throughout his life. This wasn't just a question he was asking his disciples to consider, but this was possibly even his primary challenge throughout his life. What would, what would it be for a man if he gains a whole world and yet loses his soul or forfeits his soul? When you look at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry in Matthew chapter 4 or Luke chapter 4, it tells about the temptations that he experienced. And it says there in Matthew chapter 4, verse 1, that Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And then the devil took him to the holy city, had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, It is also written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. And then again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And then the devil left him, and angels came and attended him. These temptations that Jesus faced there in the desert were right after his baptism, just at the time when he entered into his ministry. And the devil, first of all, tempts him to meet his own physical needs through a, the miraculous means of turning a stone into bread. And then he tempts him to demonstrate to the world that he is the Christ by some supernatural spectacular throwing of himself off the high point of the temple. And then he tempts him to his ultimate position of king of all the nations if he just bow down and worship him. Really, Jesus was being tempted to sell his soul to the devil. He would have, yes, he would have, could have gained the whole world, but it would really have forfeited his very soul. He could have gained the worship of the entire world through some miraculous demonstration of his power, but to do so would not have fulfilled the purpose, the plan that God had established. Oh, people would have bowed down and they would have worshipped him, but it would have been cheapened by some motivation other than by love or adoration or gratitude or thankfulness. The devil tempted him to yield to his human nature rather than to trust his father to provide for his physical needs. He tempted him to acknowledge him as a source of life, to the old devil tempted Jesus to acknowledge him as a source of life rather than his father. Replace his love and devotion for his heavenly father with his love and devotion for Satan. He tempted him to do what his human nature enticed him to do rather than what he knew was God's will for him. 
And for him to have yielded to any of these devil's temptations would have fouled God's plan that he would be the supreme sacrifice of the whole world. Every man's, every man's sins being able to be forgiven. It would have fouled the plan that John said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. It was God's will for him to suffer and to die and then be reunited with his father. This seems to be Jesus' primary temptation throughout his, at least his ministry, his, his three and a half years of ministry, maybe even possibly before that. And he, he understands what we face when we ask this question, what good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world and yet loses or forfeits his soul? You know, with Jesus, the temptation was not so much to choose a different end. It was just to choose a different means to accomplish the end. You know, it's that old saying that the end justifies the means. Well, in reality, this is really not true. In fact, in many, many, many cases, it's a perversion of the truth. And Jesus knew it. And he saw this old temptation again when he heard their Peter's rebuke to him. Spoken out of the heart of a, of a loving friend. This shall never be to you. This, shall, this should never happen to you. This will never happen to you. Almost as he is in authority to Jesus telling him, Jesus, this will never happen to you. But instead of Peter's voice, Jesus hears the old enemy's voice saying the very same thing that he was saying to him there in the desert. And when we read about the end of Jesus' life, we read about the night before he was crucified there in the Garden of Gethsemane. In Luke, it tells us that he went out to the Mount of Olives and his disciples followed him. And when they reached that place, he said to them, pray that you will not fall into temptation. And he himself withdrew a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down and prayed, Father, if you are willing, let this cup pass from me. But nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly and sweat like drops of blood falling to the ground. When he rose from prayer and went back to his disciples, he found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. And he says to them, why are you sleeping? Get up and pray, lest you enter into temptation. That very night, when Jesus was arrested, there in the Mount of Olives, where he prayed, he was facing, it, it seems that it was in the context of him, facing temptation, knowing his disciples would be vulnerable to temptation that he's praying, Father, if there be any other way, let this cup pass from me, but nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. It's like the old enemy is again encouraging him to take the easy way. Take the easy way out. Well, in this question that Jesus asks, he says to his his disciples, what will it profit a man if he gain the whole world and forfeit his very soul? What's meant by that word world? You know, in the, 
to be able to get an accurate understanding of this for myself, I went to one of my commentaries, and um, Dr. Ted Martin, in his commentary in the Beacon Bible Exposition, says this, the world, as John used it, is not the created order, but the world that has fallen through the disobedience of man. It includes God's creation, but it is that creation separated from him and seeking its own purposes. The world is good when it fulfills the purpose for which it was created. When it becomes something other than that, it's a rival of God. Man must not love the world in the sense of preferring it to God. The creator is greater than his creation, and it is he, God, Jesus, that man must worship and love. And the world is in the control of the evil one. That's why he could offer all the nations of the world to Jesus, because he's in the control of them. And to love is to turn one's back on God. To love the world is to turn one's back on God. Jesus said you cannot serve both God and mammon. John put it plainly. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Dr. Martin says John places all that is evil in the world in three categories. And of course, if we read that book of 1 John, we see the very same thing. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. That's the context of the world. And the lust of the flesh does not mean physical appetites. At least it doesn't mean them only. The evil is the lust. Jesus came in the flesh. He lived in the flesh. But he did not sin. Flesh in itself is not inherently evil. It's the distortion of natural appetites to sinful satisfaction that is lust. Sinful man is deceived. He finds certain desires of which he's born, and these desires demand satisfaction. He hungers for such satisfaction. And the devil, the great deceiver, convinces him that satisfaction comes through sin or in sin. And man discovers often too late that there is no real satisfaction, only gratification when we give way to evil passions and lust. The momentary achievement of his pleasure leaves him with a deeper hunger. I know that there's some of you here today that truly experience and know exactly what this is talking about. Trying to meet your needs, your physical needs, through some ulterior motive or means, experiencing ultimately addiction to those very means that you really have resorted to. You know, there are a lot of things in our world today that entice us. And they entice us through our own needs. It wouldn't be enticing to us if there wasn't something attractive about them. But they entice us. And ultimately, our own our only purpose is to have them met. But when we resort to them in a distorted way, they take control of us and we become addicted. There's a right way for every natural desire to find fulfillment. And it's not to be found in the, in the secular, even in the philosophy of secular humanism. If this generation's learned anything, it is that to be better off is not to be better. Like the inflation that destroys the economy, the rush for sensual satisfaction has resulted in an explosion of sex and alcoholism and obesity. 
People eat too much and have to run it off. They drink too much and have to go to spatial institutions to dry out. They abandon discipline and wind up with broken homes and empty lives. They wear themselves out to get money only to have it devalued. This is the lust of the flesh. The lust of the eyes involves the imagination. You know, I think with our society, with television and the internet and so on, we don't need to use our imaginations as much as we used to. I can tell you as a, as a young person, my imagination, imagination was vivid. I had a vivid imagination. I didn't, um, it wouldn't have probably helped a whole lot if they'd have put my imaginations on, on a movie or in, on the TV. You know, I, I could have maybe even embellished what they would think of. But it's imagination, seeing things not as they are, but as we want them to be. It's a glittery, the showy that descends ultimately to what Dr. Martin says is pornographic. And Jesus taught that immorality began with a look of lust. Remember what Jesus taught there in Matthew? He said if a man looks at a woman to lust after her, he's already committed adultery with her. You know, Jesus said that immorality begins this way. With the imagination. You know, we as Christians must keep our eyes on God and not on the things of the world. The pride of life or the boasting of the things that we have and have done is an egotistical notion that we are better and deserve better things. It's, it's more than the idea of keeping up with the Joneses. It's really doing better than the Joneses. You know, it's claiming that we ourselves have earned what we have or what we have accomplished. For many people, Thanksgiving Day has become, an, you know, a day of kind of thanking themselves or acknowledging themselves instead of acknowledging God who has made us and created all things and given us all things. This is the pride of, of life which boasts my power and the might of my hand have gotten this wealth, as Deuteronomy 8.17 says. Pride is an exact, exacting master, Dr. Martin says. It drives one to ever more gaudy display. It thrusts one in the center of attention, no matter how boring it is to others. Pride incites strife and war. It destroys relationships. It refuses to admit responsibility for failure. It isolates one from the affections so desperately needed. And James says, from whence come wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence, even from your lusts that war in your members? You lust and you have not. You kill and you desire to have, but you cannot obtain. You fight and you war. Yet you have not, because you ask not. What are the things of the world? What, are, what is the world that entices us? The lust. And it ultimately, where do, these, where do these things come from? Where do these things of the world come from? From our heart. From our heart. The condition of our heart. The lust, the attitudes, even our focus on life, our values, the methods that we choose to obtain things, accomplish things, become successful, our passions, 
even the lies that we buy into, and I could expound on that in our culture today. The evil that is so present, so prevalent, really, in so many devices, so many of the ways, that, the things we deal with today. But how does Jesus' temptation compare to our temptation? John tells us that these temptations are the very same ones that Jesus faced. To exchange the love and the adoration and the gratitude, the worship of God for the worship and the gratitude of the devil, the things of the devil, following him. But Jesus, the temptation was not so much to choose a different end, but to choose different means to accomplish that end. And it can be the same with us. It's not the world or the things of the world that are a problem for us. It really is whether or not they are God's will, God's plan for us. God's will, his desire is to bless us. But whether or not the things of the world become a blessing to us depends upon where our heart is and the focus of our mind and our life. John says, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And the opposite is also true. If the love of the Father, if anyone loved the Father, the love of the world really can't be in him. It's a heart. Well, Jesus gave the disciples his means of overcoming those temptations. Even there in the desert, Jesus submitted to God's word. He quoted the scriptures three times at least. He, knew, he had them so, they were so much a part of him that they, when the time came that he needed them, he was just able to express them. Submitting to God's word. Not just speaking God's word, but submitting his life, his will to God's word. The second thing, he submitted to God's plan for him. You know, it, the old enemy was pr- promoting and proposing a different means of accomplishing God's way. But Jesus submitted to God's plan, and then he also committed, submitted to God's will. You know, when tempted to turn stones into bread, Jesus says, it's written, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. He knew the scripture, which has came from the book of Deuteronomy. Well, so what would Jesus' New Year's resolutions be? He gave them to his disciples when he was speaking to Peter. After he spoke to Peter, after he told Peter, get, me, get thee behind me, Satan, he said to his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross. And Luke says daily, take up his cross daily and follow me. The way to overcome our temptations is to deny ourselves. Deny ourselves of the things of the world. Anything that would be connected with the enemy and his ways, we deny ourselves of them. We take up our cross, meaning we are willing to die to those things, to give them up completely. And we follow Jesus. And when we follow him, we find it's a pleasant path that we follow it. He is, his love expands our lives as we follow him. The reasons why we have difficulty doing this is because our hearts are set on the world. We love the world. We're focused on the world rather than upon Jesus and his eternity. Well, how do we, how do we overcome those temptations? The very same way. Deny ourselves, take up our cross, follow him. 
for every person, the, tr the cross will be something different. You know, if you talk to people, they will tell you what they've had, especially Christian people, they will tell you what they've had to face in their life, the things they've had to endure. And what, what some people, what their cross is, is not going to be the same as my cross. Not going to be the same as someone else's cross. But Luke, Luke tells us that we're to take up this cross daily. The choices, the decisions, individually, every day, moment by moment, experience by experience, circumstance by circumstance. And just as we've seen with Jesus, there's one primary challenge that he had throughout his life. And that was to stay on track, stay on, on course with God's will and God's plan for him. The, te the temptation the enemy continually reverted to was to try to get him to move off course and to really focus on the world rather than focus on eternity. There was a man, I, I read this book about two years ago, and it's a, it's a book about Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And, and uh, I don't know if you know about Dietrich Bonhoeffer and his life, but um, Eric Metaxas, in his book, tells of the last 24 hours of, of Dietrich Bonhoeffer's life. He says in the bright Schoenberg schoolroom that was their cell, Dr. or Pastor Bonhoeffer held a small service. He prayed and he read the verse for that day, Isaiah 53, 5. With his stripes we are healed. And 1 Peter 1, 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he said, By his great mercy we have been born anew to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, which is from that scripture. And then he explained, explained these verses to everyone. Another prisoner that was there recalled that Bonhoeffer spoke to them in a manner which reached the hearts of them all, finding just the right words to express the spirit of their imprisonment and the thoughts and the resolutions that it had brought. He had hardly finished his last prayer when the door opened, and two evil-looking men in civilian clothes came and said, Prisoner Bonhoeffer, get ready to come with us. Those words, come with us, for all prisoners had come to mean only one thing, the scaffold. And so the prisoners bade him goodbye, and he drew aside, and he said this to the one that was testifying, this is the end. But he said, for me, it's the beginning of life. And we know that Bonhoeffer's thought of death as the last station on the road to freedom. He saw that as the last station. Even if millions had seen Bonhoeffer's death as tragic and as permanently ended life, prematurely ended life, we can be certain that he did not see it that way. Pastor Bonhoeffer did not see death as a end. And in a sermon he preached while a pastor in London, he said, no one has yet believed in God and the kingdom of God. No one has yet heard about the realm of the resurrected and not been homesick from that hour, waiting and looking forward joyfully to being released from bodily existence. Whether we are young or old makes no difference. What are 20 or 30 or 50 years in the sight of God? And which of us knows how near or she may already be to the goal? That life only really begins when it ends here on earth. That all that is here is only the prologue before the curtain goes up. 
that is for young and old alike to think about. Why are we so afraid when we think about death? Death is only dreadful for those who live in dread and fear of it. Death is not wild and terrible. If only we can be still and hold fast to God's word. Death is not bitter. If we have not become bitter ourselves, death is grace. The greatest gift of grace that God gives to people who believe in him. Death is mild. Death is sweet and gentle. It beckons to us with heavenly power. If only we realize that it is the gateway to our whole land, the tabernacle of joy, the everlasting kingdom of peace. How do we know that dying is so dreadful? Who knows whether in our human fear and anguish we are only shivering and shuddering at the most glorious, heavenly, blessed event in the world. Death is hell and night and cold if it is not transformed by our faith. But that's just what is so marvelous, that we can transform death. The camp doctor at Flossenburg was H. Fischer Holstrom. He had no idea whom he was watching at the time, but years later he gave the following account of Bonhoeffer's last minutes alive. On the morning of that day, between five and six o'clock, the prisoners were taken from their cells, and the verdicts of the court-martial read out to them. Through the half-open door in the room of the huts, I saw Pastor Bonhoeffer before taking off his prison guard, kneeling on the floor, praying fervently to his God. I was most deeply moved by the way this lovable man prayed, so devout, so certain that God heard his prayer. At the place of execution, he again said a short prayer, then climbed the steps to the gallows, brave and composed. His death ensued after a few seconds. And in almost 50 years that I worked as a doctor, I've hardly ever seen a man die so entirely submissive to the will of God. Bonhoeffer was able to face his death because he had practiced taking up his cross daily and following Jesus. So when the day came that he was executed, he anticipated it rather than feared it. Pastor Julius Rieger was the one that informed Bonhoeffer's family of his death. And in their meeting, Pastor Rieger read from Matthew chapter 10, where it says, Behold, I send you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves, but beware of men, for they will deliver you up to the councils and will scourge you. But when they deliver you up, take no thought how or what ye shall speak, for it shall be given you in that same hour what ye shall speak. For it is not you that speak, but the Spirit of your Father which speaketh in you. There is nothing covered that shall be revealed, anything hidden that shall not be known. Whosoever, therefore, shall confess me before men, him will I confess also before my Father which is in heaven. But whoever shall deny me before men, him will I also deny before my Father which is in heaven. And he taketh not his cross, and he that taketh not his cross and followeth after me is not worthy of me. He that findeth his life shall lose it. He that loseth his life for my sake shall find it. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Our greatest challenge, to consistently live with an eternal perspective about life. What good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world and yet forfeits his soul? Jesus had one main temptation that he faced with his life. That temptation was a challenge to him. He never knew when he was going to face it. He had no idea when Peter heard what Jesus said, that he would be speaking the words of Satan. 
Jesus didn't know he was going to be confronted with Satan at that time, with a temptation. It seemed to plague him throughout his life. And if I know people very well, I know that each one of us have a week, one week specific area of our life that over the years of our life we've had to struggle with. It's been a challenge for us, even as Christians, to find victory and release from it. But you know, Jesus is giving us a possibility of doing that very thing through what he said, if we will take up our cross daily and follow him. It's a moment by moment, day by day, challenge by challenge, experience by experience, circumstance by circumstance, decision that we must make. It really is a continual decision of what we made when we made our decision to accept Christ in our life. It's an ongoing decision every day to put him first within our heart and within our mind and within our life. That very decision that we made a choice when we first accepted Christ within our life. You know, I don't know all of you. In fact, I don't know most of you. But I'm sure that there are some that are struggling with the lust of flesh, lust of the flesh. I'm sure there are some that may be struggling with the lust of the eyes, the imagination. In our culture today, there's just so much that pulls at us as Christians. I know there may be some that's even struggling with the pride of what God has enabled you to accomplish, the pride of life. Using it in a way that does not exalt the Lord. Jesus said, what does a prophet man if he gains a whole world and yet loses or forfeits his very soul? What does, what does it com- accomplish us if we compromise in some way? You know, Holy Spirit is so faithful. He loves us so much. He's so dependable. Jesus said the Holy Spirit would convict us of our guilt of sin and of, an, of, our, uh, and of righteousness and of judgment. Jesus will convict, he will impress us upon us. And so this morning as we kind of apply this truth that Jesus taught, I want to give opportunity, if there's any here this morning who may be struggling with any of these things, to make some new commitments, to make a new decision. Let Jesus know that you are sincere and serious in this beginning of 2014 to establish your walk with him and renew your walk with him. Maybe get yourself back on course with him. Whatever it is that's happening, maybe, you know, the Holy Spirit is faithful. He will speak to you. There's an old hymn that I'd like to have us sing as we dismissed this morning, and it's, Just as I am, without one plea. And I'd like to have you stand with me, if you would.